the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, Associate Editor at The Tracking Board, and with me, as always... I'm Pai Chen Bui, a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I'm Willoughby Dubs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. So today, we're going to be talking about classic Hollywood musicals, mostly, specifically, MGM musicals. Uh, There has been a lot of talk about this genre of film lately because of the Oscar-nominated movie. Oh, actually, not Oscar-nominated movie because the Oscar nominations are not out yet. But probably Oscar-nominated. Because of the fuzzy award circuit movie La La Land, which is a grand homage to the MGM musicals of the past, um, both in topic and in theme. Um, And it's kind of sparked a lot of backlash against it just because it's so steeped in that nostalgia. But we're here to talk about how that nostalgia isn't necessarily a bad thing and why we love these classic Hollywood movies um, from the roughly 1940s to... 1960s so much. Um, we're going to be specifically talking about um, musicals, of course. So, um, Anya, why don't you get into a history of classic Hollywood musicals for us? All right. So we'll do just a brief little history for everyone. Um, so we're mostly going to be talking about the 1930s to the 1950s. It's considered the golden age of the musical film, um, in Hollywood, at least. Um, it really kind of started with the late 1920s when sound was introduced. So you had movies like The Jazz Singer in 27, I believe, and then the Broadway Melody. And that kind of introduced, you know, as you see in a later film, a later musical film, a little one called Singing in the Rain. Um, that's what that's all about. So that kind of introduced it. And then in the late 1920s, that started happening. And then in the 19, early 1930s, it actually started to wane musicals. People kind of had oversaturation of musicals. Um, of that kind of, it was the same all the time. And then in 1933, a little man named Busby Berkeley came around and he sort of changed the musical by introducing, he was mostly changed the dancing style in musicals. He introduced drill precision from when he was a soldier into the choreography. Hmm. Um, and so he sort of changed it and kind of revived the musical um, one of the movies that like he's known for is 42nd Street. And so that kind of happened. And then by the late 1930s, you had the duo of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, who I think even if you've never seen any of those films, you know who they are. And kind of the fact that they were a big singing and dancing duo. Really wonderful. Um, although they also have musicals that they're not in together that are worth watching that we will talk about later. Um, and then... The 1940s and 50s are kind of the big musical time for Hollywood, um, especially at MGM, like you said, HT, because a man named Arthur Freed came into MGM and he really changed the musical. One of the ways is by adding plot (laughs) to the musical. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of those big musicals during that time, um, it's like Me in St. Louis, Singing in the Rain, On the Town, and American in Paris. That plot's a little flimsy, but that kind of happened. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of the history of the musical and how it evolved and became what we think of as the classic Hollywood musical. So I have a question. Um, we see a lot of these classic Hollywood musicals as being sort of the film version of you know, Broadway shows. And that tends to have you know plot and dance numbers and dance numbers that have to do with that plot. Um, but were Broadway musicals around much um, when the movie musicals started taking off? Because I noticed in early movie musicals, like you said, Anya, the songs didn't really have much to do with the plot, and the plot tended to be very, like, simple. Like, Gold Diggers Mm -hmm. of 1933, for example, um, was kind of a story about, like, the ongoings of, like, the the showgirls and stuff, but all of the songs were very just, like, the... the numbers that they performed on stage, nothing to do with yeah. the actual plot. Yeah. So um, my question is, did Broadway musicals have inf- any influence on like the introduction of plot into these uh, movie musicals, or were they also just like starting to come about later on as well? 
I know less about Broadway itself during this time, um, especially during the 1930s. I'm not as familiar with that. Um, I think on Broadway, a big transformation was Roger and Hammerstein. Mm. Because, you know, they had all these Broadway musicals that became really famous Hollywood musicals. But their musicals are very, like, plot-heavy. And I definitely want to get into them because I love them. It's a very hit or miss, but I love them. Um, And they're very plot-heavy. And they really came around in the early 1940s Mm. um, on Broadway. Their first one was Oklahoma in 1943. A classic. Yes, a classic. Do you know that one, Willoughby? I've heard of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you guys couldn't tell, I don't really know musicals very well. Well, I'm here to learn. I'm here yeah. to learn. I'm here to sit back and learn. So if you don't hear me very much, that's why. <laughs> I think we're all here to learn. Um, movie musicals are not my forte as much either, but I've seen, a, I had a huge Fred and Ginger phase, so I watched quite a bit um, back in middle school. Uh, yeah. yeah, I will say, like, at least with when regards to Rodgers and Hammerstein, like, another thing is that, like, so before them, like, 1920s, 1930s, mm. musicals were mostly kind of just, like, charming, fun, and, like, sentimental and comedic and just kind of, like, there for the flash and the fun of it. And mm. Rodgers and Hammerstein were kind of some of the first people to introduce more serious themes and plots into their musicals which I think also transformed things like Carousel is a terrible musical and I hate it, but it does address domestic violence. The problem is that like the guy who commits the domestic violence is like the guy you're supposed to root for. It's terrible. Uh. Um, yeah, it's very awful. Um, but then you have something like the sound of music, which takes place during world war two. And you have this family who are, fighting against the Nazis. Mm-hmm. Wait, that was South- a Rodgers and Hammerstein? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Oh, see, I didn't know that. I'm learning. There you go. Um, or you have, like, South Pacific, which addresses racism a lot. So I think that's another thing, is that, like, people started to do more with, like, the content of musicals mm-hmm. during, like, the 1940s or so. And before that, they were kind of mostly just, like you were saying, like, song and dance numbers, but not really the plot-heavy and... That kind of thing. Yeah. Jazz hands. Lots of jazz hands. And we can see that Rodgers and Hammerstein um, musicals have the chance to be uh, transformed as well. Because we see that with Cinderella, which uh, was originally um, a TV musical, you told me, um, starring Julie Andrews. But then they redid it with uh, Brandy and Whitney Houston for television as well. And it is still one of my favorite musicals, Guilty Pleasure. Um, Yes. It's it, my favorite Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. It is it is great. And it's just like they they transform it so much in that like they have such a, a diverse cast and they don't really acknowledge that these people have like it's like a black um, mother and a white husband and they have like an Asian prince. And I Isn't love that Isn't Victor so Garber much. the dad? Yes. Yes. And Whoopi Goldberg's the mom. Whoopi Goldberg I love Victor is the Garber. Mom. <laughs> and then they have like yeah, and a Filipino I think uh, son, and it's it's so great. It's just like it's nonsensical and fun, but it still has that heart of the original musical at it. Too. Yeah, it's so great. Fun fact: Cinderella didn't get on Broadway until the most the current iteration of it in 2013. That's they added weird. in it's still Rodgers and Hammerstein. They added in a couple new songs, uh-huh. um, but people always think that Cinderella was on Broadway like long before this, but it only ever got to Broadway in 2013 because yeah like you said Julie Andrews was never on stage of Cinderella with the TV movie so kind of a weird TV movie it's like charming but it has some of the weirdest camera angles I've ever seen in my life um it's very weird are you talking about the original one the Julie Andrews one or the yeah the Julie Andrews one Mm -hmm. yeah but the Brandy one is also like so wonderful it is um, we should also mention that Roger, if like since we already delved into Roger the Hammer sign, that they their movies mostly worked out of Fox and not MGM. Mm. Just so everyone knows, like their musicals were not part of kind of the MGM kind of sweep of musicals. Although they came out around the same time, so you know they were still riding that wave. So why do we think that MGM had such a monopoly on these musicals? It was just what they were good at, so they tended to crank out all these musicals and had all these musical stars under them? That, I think, the fact that they had, like, 
uh, Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor and why am I blinking on names right now? Um, Judy Garland. And they had all these people. I think also just Arthur Freed. Mm. Like you have someone at the head who is like dedicated to musicals and transforming them and kind of leading them. And no other studio had someone like him. Mm. And so he kind of like spearheaded the whole transformation of the musical in the 1940s. Right. Um, and then, yeah, if you consider the stars that they had, like, it was kind of unparalleled. So a little bit about the studio system um, of Golden Age Hollywood is that the actors and the directors weren't so much free agents as they are now. They were very much, like, contracted for each studio, and that's why these studios were such big name brands essentially they controlled every aspect of these stars and their directors both professional and personal lives in ways like they always had to kind of groom that image that all the stars had um you see a little bit of that in funnily enough an mgm musical singing in the rain uh which you see kind of like that whole uh studio influence and the how the stars are kind of under the impact or under the influence of those like of their celebrity persona and more recently, you see that in Hail Caesar, which was a Coen Brothers movie about the studio system, which mm-hmm. we've talked about wasn't great, mm-hmm. but it's a very good example of of that nature of like what the studios, how, how studios had power over even the directors who, you know, nowadays we assume the directors have all the control over their movie, or at least most of the controls. Maybe the studio has still some. It's much more prevalent in uh, independent directors, but like back then... Directors were just hired to direct stuff. They weren't really the auteurs that we know them today. Yeah, they were cogs in the machine. Um, the auteur- yeah, do you want to? Do you want to hear a fun story about this? Sure, sure. I had to look it up to make sure it was. I actually read it right. It's in a Jimmy Stewart biography. It's by a biographer that I don't like really love. Mm-hmm. So I'm not. I feel like it could happen, but I also take it with a grain of salt with this guy. Um, his name's Mark Elliott. Um, so apparently. Um, Jimmy Stewart was um, an actor for Louis B. Mayer. Mm-hmm. So everyone knows. And apparently Louis B. Mayer was so concerned with Jimmy Stewart's like appearance as being like wholesome and wonderful and was afraid that people would see him as gay that he sent Jimmy Stewart to a brothel to make sure people knew that like he was not gay and was in fact interested in women. And it um, became like a scandal or like a I, no, it didn't become a scandal. It just, no, it never just really so ruined knew. Jimmy Stewart. People still think of Jimmy Stewart as the most wholesome, like, lovely guy. So, uh-huh. um, so like, again, like, I feel like there's there's probably an element of this. I don't know if it happened exactly the way Mark Elliott says it did, but that's kind of the way. It's also, like, Humphrey Bogart, everyone knows his birthday as December 25th, 1899, mm-hmm. when he was actually born in January. Of 1899 or 1900? I believe 1900. Okay. Mm, maybe 1899 one, or 1900 mm-hmm. of January. And the studio, he worked for Warner Brothers. The studio was so, like, concerned because he played so many gangsters. And they were like, how can we make the public like you, but you're playing, like, all these really, like, rough guys? And they were like, we know. We'll change your birthday to Christmas. Can no one? No one can hate someone who's born on Christmas, and so no one can hate someone born on the day of Jesus. Yeah. So now Humphrey Bogart has two birthdays, um, and which, one which of them was re- manufactured by the studio. That's really so funny. weird because a lot of people like pe- actors who do like the grim and gritty stuff because that's what they do. Like, it's funny that they were like so concerned with yeah. that. Which brings us back to musicals because you have someone like James Cagney who did his share of gangster films and then also did Yankee Doodle Dandy. I did not know that. So it just goes to show you that these people of the time were, you know, very versatile and could do kind of their share of... It's almost like they were acting. (gasps) What? But yeah, so studios like to groom their actors. Um, Mm. Not to get off the topic of musicals, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a, a really fun... I'm always really fascinated by the studio system like of, of Golden Age Hollywood and just kind of, like, how, um, like, smooth it was and just kind of, like, how automated it was, I guess. 
But also at the same time, they created just all these great stars in movies. So it wasn't completely, you know, manufactured at the same time. Now, Anya, I have a question for you. Yes. Um, how much influence did the Hayes Code have over musicals? And is there a difference between pre-Hayes Code musicals and post or or current or like within the Hayes Code musical? Um, I will say that the Hayes Code would apply to musicals. Like there's still movies being made by the studio system, so they still had to comply with the Hayes Code. Mm-hmm. Um, however, HT waved her hand very enthusiastically just now, so I feel like she wants to add something in, too. I did my whole um, law school paper, not law school, law class paper on uh, the Hayes Code. HT went to law school and we I never knew. School, but, yeah, like, guys. <laughs> She's a casual. I, went, I did I have my a law whole degree, guys. law class paper on the Hayes Code and its impact on censorship and stuff in the movies. Um, I didn't particularly focus on musicals, but I will say that there was more... Like and how like how it impacted money movies, um, it there was like less you know nudity and um, kind of the the more free living ways of that you can see in like early musicals. Like I say again, Gold Diggers of 1933, they actually remade this movie several times um, in ni- in the 1950s and then a 19- the 1960s again and you can see like the huge difference between 1933 and the 1950s because uh these women in the 1933 one were like very obviously gold diggers um i think let me actually look up who is in it because it was a somewhat famous uh musical singer who becomes um really uh associated with mgm musicals later on hold on um i will say why she's looking this up willoughby that like Definitely, if you look at the musicals and stuff during this time, like, they were pretty wholesome and, mm-hmm. you know, like, very lovely. Like, even Rodgers and Hammerstein, like, addressing something like domestic violence in Carousel, the wrong way to address it, but still, it wasn't, like, what you'd expect to see in a movie that has, like, domestic violence. Mm-hmm. And we should still... point out, for people who don't know what the Hayes Code is, it's a code, uh, basically, like, a decent a, a decency code for Hollywood that was enacted with it in the 1930s and lasted all the way to like the, the late 1960s. Um, and basically like there's a lot of things you couldn't put in movies because of they that were, like, code. Moral police. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moral police. Like everyone had to be Christian. Everybody had to have like sex before, after marriage. Like there was a lot of like things that you couldn't show, you couldn't talk about. Um, and then the late 1960s with the advent of new Hollywood really kind of just took the Hayes code, away because like people just were not abiding by it anymore like you yeah, couldn't have a movie when... like bonnie and clyde under the Hayes code is that when the mpaa rating system came about i think um, that's when it came about it came out about a little bit later because there was excessive violence in the 1960s in movies like bonnie and clyde and like mm-hmm. psycho and that kind of stuff um but it came about later because you know there was a little bit of a lax time in between like that in that time period in which people started saying, oh, maybe we should have some sort of code that isn't as uh, strict as the Hayes Code. And the yeah, Hayes and we didn't really, um, sorry, continue. Oh, I was just going to say, and we didn't have a rating like PG-13 until the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it was G, PG, and R for mm-hmm. a while. And X for pornographic movies. So Gold Diggers of 1933 is actually a really good example of pre-code versus post-code because it kind of came about at the same time, at the time the code was implemented. So there were scenes that were actually removed um, after the code um, started to be implemented. So there's a scene in which Joan Blondell, who's the main character, is wearing like a coin costume in which just like her breasts are um, covered by giant coins and she's not really, and like her skirt is made of coins as well and it's quite scanty. Um, And there's also like posters that were changed, that were altered after um, the code came about. So the first poster um, pre-code was like a stripper who was partially nude and covered by like a cloth. Um, And then post-code there was one with chorus girl who had like a longer skirt, essentially. So it's really interesting. And there's, like, yeah, more, like, lax sort of um, living standards, I guess you would say, and, like, lax morals that you could see in, like, pre-code movies like nineteen, like Gold Diggers in 1933. By the way, stars Ginger Rogers as one of the um, Gold Diggers, and she's playing very against type that you see her in, like, the Fred and Ginger movies. She's playing kind of like the buxom blonde, I think, which is really funny. Oh. Mm-hmm. 
So speaking of Ginger Rogers, um, so you really liked Fred and Ginger HP. Yes, I did. So I think we should um, just mention kind of quickly for everyone some of our favorites, maybe. So what are some of your favorites, Fred and Ginger or otherwise? So I was a big fan of Top Hat, um, Shall We Dance, and The Gay Divorcee. Uh, yes. All of which, when I, I one time, like, I marathoned a bunch of these Fred and Ginger movies. I think I had, like, a box set. You realize that it's kind of the same plot for each of these films. Ginger Rogers plays some sort of, like, um, higher-end woman who is aggressively wooed by um, Fred Astaire's character, so much so that he's kind of stalking her in some points. Um, either that or, like, they they clash a lot at the beginning. But then they end up, you know, getting along and falling in love despite their circumstances. Uh, one interesting fact about the gay divorcee is that because Ginger Rogers' character was a divorcee, they couldn't have her and Fred kiss on screen because of uh, Hayes Code um, violations. So, because, like, you know, it's uh, immoral to have someone who is, uh, re- who was recently married or who is, like, not, who's not, like, completely, like, out of the bounds of marriage uh, to have them, like, kiss on screen. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any others beyond Fred and Ginger? Okay. Um, I do, I, I love Singing in the Rain. That's one of my favorites. Um, I like Funny Face, another. Uh, that's I was going to bring up Funny Face. Mm-hmm. Funny Face is one of my favorite movies. It's Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. And it's so charming. And I love Funny Face so much. I know. Even though it is like, it's always weird with Audrey Hepburn and like the movies in her peak like era, she's always being uh, paired with actors who are much older than her yeah. and Fred Astaire like in that case is like he's obviously much older than her but it's like it's nothing has changed in Hollywood changed but you know they're both so charming and it's such a fun film with like beautiful costumes and scenery that I don't mind as much um yeah. what else that's and the music's really cute it is really cute I've only seen Willoughby, I feel like we're just giving you a list of recommendations yeah exactly to watch <laughs> check out all these musicals I'm trying to think of others that I've seen. Um, I have only seen scenes of American Paris because I wanted to see the, I think that's the movie with the skateboarding, with the skate, roller skating, tap dancing scene, right? Is that it? Oh God, I haven't seen an American Paris in so long, but I think you're right. Yeah, because I was watching the scene of Gene Kelly tap dancing in roller skates and he like tap dances through a toy store. I'm pretty sure it's an American Paris. Who hasn't? Yeah. But Fred and Ginger also have a roller skating <laughs> tap yeah. dancing scene. I think it's in Shall We Dance. It's when yeah. they sing um the let's let's throw the whole thing out. What's that song? You say tomato, I say tomato. What song is that called? Oh no, so it looks like um that movie is actually from It's Always Fair Weather. Oh, well I have not seen that then. I think I just associate it with American in Paris because Gene Kelly is one of yeah, Gene like, Kelly's most famous films. familiar for an American in Paris because American in Paris is too sophisticated to have roller skates. Okay. Or it thinks it is. <laughs> so, Anya, um, why don't you tell us some of your favorite American uh, Hollywood musicals? Yeah. Okay, well, you've listed some. Singing in the Rain and Funny Face are mm-hmm. some of my absolute favorites. Um, also, Wizard of Oz. Oh, have you heard about that? Is it a musical? It is. It is a musical. I mean, it has songs, but is it a musical? I mean, it's not a song Everyone... and dance musical, but it's still a musical. Everyone mm-hmm. sings in it. Yeah. Like, they yes. all have their songs. Like, if I only had a brain, if I only had a heart, you know, like, when they get to Oz, when they get to the Emerald City. They don't sing so... in Tin Man. Yeah, they do. <laughs> I'm just joking. Oh, wait. I thought you meant, like, the Tin Man doesn't sing. No, no. I was, like, yes, I was nice. making a Zoe Deschanel's Tin you Man joke. You were making joke. a joke about the miniseries. Uh-huh. Um, I remember that. Um, I forgot that they all had those little songs that they did. So. Yeah, and then you have, like, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. The and iconic song. Yeah, and you have, um, yeah, so Wizard of Oz is definitely a musical. So have you seen that one, Willoughby? Of course I have. So, yes. okay, you've seen two musicals now. Ho-ho! <laughs> um, so I love that one. It's one of my favorites. It's, like, my mom's favorite film. Um, she used to have to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow to me every night before bed, or else, like, I would not go to bed. Like, Aww, that was, like, our that's thing. cute. 
I got um, nightmares from Wizard of Oz. I don't blame you. It's actually kind of scary. I, I was only able to watch it once before I was like, I'm never watching that movie movie again because those flying monkeys traumatized me for like 10 years of my life. Yeah, think, yeah, those are scary. The witch is scary. I mean, when Dorothy and the Scarecrow are in the forest and like the trees keep picking on them, like, yeah, there's some scary things in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so definitely with Devise, Rogers and Hammerstein, which you talked about, but they're one of my favorite duos. Um, Cinderella especially, but I'm also have a fondness for South Pacific and The King and I. Mm. Oh, I also was thinking about this. The King and I and The Sound of Music have some really interesting parallels. Really. Well, because, like, oh. you have, like, someone come in and, like, who comes into the family who's new and, like, they teach the children. Right. Um, And there's, like... And a, they woo the dad. And they woo the dad. Although The King and I had the much sadder ending than yeah. The Sound of Music does. Uh-huh. Yes, will it be just as a warning? I haven't, um, I haven't watched and I The King and I in forever. Happily. Hmm? Well, I haven't watched The King and I in forever, but I remember liking it a lot when I was young. I did watch the original... Um, version too with classic you'll watch the tom felton version (laughs) the tom felton version oh that's that's um anna and the king though that's one with um oh is that anna and the king yeah that's anna and the king because i remember looking it up after you told me about it like that's not the king and i yeah well it's basically just an an anagram of the king and i yes but and the king King it's not a musical it's not a musical no because like the king and i is based on anna and the king right so like the Tom Felton version is technically an adaptation, but it's not a musical. I keep forgetting that it's not a musical. Okay. <laughs> I, well, you, I have seen that version, the non-musical version. What um, I want to see is Yul Brynner's character in The Magnificent Seven play the king, like, as the western guy in the movie. That's not true. call it the cowboy and I. Okay, well, it be. <laughs> oh, wait, no, that's Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> what just happened? I don't know. Um... So I really love Rodgers and Hammerstein. I think some of their movies are a little hit or miss, like Carousel. I will just keep bringing that up. Um, <laughs> but their music really holds up really well. Um, and I think most of their movies do, too, and the most musical, just in terms of, like, the sheer scope of them. I wonder um, how The King and I ages, because I remember watching oh, it when I'm I was really Tuesday young. Night. Huh? I'm seeing it Tuesday night, so I'll let you know. Ooh, let me know. Yeah, because I wonder, uh, you know... It has, like, the setting in, um, what Asian country is it? Is it, like, Thailand or something? Oh, gosh. This I can't question. remember. I, this should an answer I should know. But I remember loving it a lot when I was young. I even watched, like, the cartoon adaptation of it because I loved it so much. And I was like, there's no singing in this. <laughs> yeah. I watched um, The King and I. Um, and, oh, uh, it's um, Siam. Siam. Okay. Apologies for those for getting that wrong the first time but yeah the king and i it's like because it's of that setting and like you know the portrayal of siam and like that culture as being somewhat traditional set in the ways i don't know like if it would age well today um like bringing that westernization and stuff like that in but it would be interesting to see to see it again because i haven't seen it since i was a kid and i did like it a lot yeah, we're seeing um, the revival of it, like the stage revival. It's on okay. the national tour. Um, I also think it's um, worth it to check out some of like the sheer, like silly, fun musicals. Mm-hmm. Like one of my favorites is Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, I've which is that. a 1954 film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ridiculous, but like the dancing sequences are so good. And the movie's just, like, a lot of fun. You'll just, like, smile your way through it. Um, so I really think some of those are fun to check out. This is... I need to recommend this to you guys. It's from 1969, so it doesn't fall into our time frame. But have you guys seen Paint Your Wagon? No. Oh, my God. It's a musical with very young Clint Eastwood. Really? Yes. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Yes. And he plays completely against type. Like, totally not the character that you think of as Clint Eastwood. Well, that's before um, his type, stars... too, right? That's before he yeah, made Yeah, I mean, it's type. musical. <laughs> like, yeah. And it also stars Lee Marvin. Um, it's based on the 1951 musical, so it, that one falls into our purview. Mm-hmm. But the it's really fun. Like, the, the 1969 musical Clint Eastwood, it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's a little like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and that like it's you know not spectacular or anything but like that's the thing with musicals is that like I don't know they bring me such joy yeah um and like they're inherently fantasies like right by nature musicals are sort of fantasy films in that in real life people don't actually break into song with perfectly choreographed dancing and a great orchestra behind them Willoughby's like, what are you talking about, Anya? I do. Which is what I think yeah, the appeal the of La La Land is. And um, I think that detractors against that movie should be reminded of that as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, remember when, I remember when I saw it and someone was like, when they went to the Getty, or the Griffith Observatory, and they were like, they can't just do that. And I was like, not the point. <laughs> also, if you look at the characters' faces in La La Land, when they, when they realize that they could like float, they're like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Like, they're yeah, also exactly. kind of aware of it. So it's, like, yeah. it's, it's pointed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's a long-winded way of saying those are some of my favorite musicals that everyone should check out. Okay. Because um, they're a lot of fun. So I know, Willoughby, so you've seen Sing on the Rain and Wizard of Oz. Is your relationship... Do you like musicals? Or I do. Have you just... Okay. I like musicals. Like, I like, I like Moulin Rouge. I like a lot of, like, you know, I think... They- probably the disney musicals or i've you know i can name all the disney musicals i've seen but like the classic like it's classic hollywood musicals that i haven't really seen a lot of you have to do distant digging sometimes so like that's the that's the thing is like if we were talking about like modern musicals or like you know other like more recently i could talk more but like the the classic hollywood that we have designated of like the 30s through the late the early 60s like that's something i really don't know so if i had to like pick of the two that i've seen i would choose singing in the rain it's my favorite but that's like you know it's like picking you know i don't know it's 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 not really a favorite i mean it is a favorite but it's like it's the only one it's like the only (laughs) one i've seen so it's like it doesn't really yeah so would we count like snow white and the seven dwarfs as a musical in our discussion given that it came out during the same time period and it is a musical it's just animated I, I mean, wouldn't we could, say so. We could. Yeah, I wouldn't say so though because I feel like there's some there's a specific type of movie that came out um, from like the studio system with the yeah. with yeah. these stars that are groomed to become like these perfect, uh, you know, images of the musical fantasy. I think. Um, yeah, we're talking I, really, about a very I, I also wouldn't really. I wouldn't put like personally. I wouldn't put Snow White on like a favorites list mm-hmm. just because. I mean, I just don't. I mean, I like it. I just don't put it as like a favorite. So. No, but it is a beautiful film. Yes, it's yeah, it's true. It's a, an accomplished film, definitely being oh, yeah. the yeah. first animated feature length film, essentially. Yeah, like I won't. I'm not gonna deny. I'm not gonna give it. I'm not gonna deny it its props. Like, yeah. it's it's a very great movie. I just wouldn't put it on my list of favorite musicals. Oh, yeah. I have definitely another one. Movie of its time. I forgot. Um, Guys and Dolls, starring starring Marlon Brando, thanks. Was it Frank Sinatra? Yeah. Yes. And Frank yes. Sinatra. Um, originally, when it was being made, Frank Sinatra wanted to play the starring role, but by the time he it got around to being developed, he was too old, so he ended up playing like the older, wiser character. And Marlon Brando played the starring character, um, which probably wasn't the greatest idea because he doesn't have a great singing voice. <laughs> surprisingly, he has like, a very high-pitched singing voice. Yes. And very uh, like thin. Um, yeah. The only song I liked from him was uh, Luck Be a Lady because it was just like, it was really fun and snappy. Um, it is a good song. Fun Willie fact. I was in a production of Guys and Dolls in seventh grade. Were you? Yep. Was not any of the major, major <laughs> characters, but I was in a, a production. I was also in a musical version of Oliver Twist in sixth grade. So That's awesome. I've been in musicals yeah. on, on, on the stage. Uh, not leading men, but, you know, Kid number one, so. <laughs> so that's why I that find like really awesome. the relationship between the Broadway musical and the film musical so interesting because I like wonder where they start and like whether what kind of like codependent relationship that is. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm sure you can look up each movie and see like if it started on the stage or on the screen. But you know, yeah. I wonder. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, that. Guys and Dolls, I've only seen it once, so I can't really remember it very well, but I remember having fun with it. It's fun. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. I have a bit of a thing with Frank Sinatra, so. Do you? No, like a bad thing. Oh, okay. Oh. He, he like, broke Lauren Bacall's heart after Humphrey Bogart died, so I'm like, no thank you, Frank Sinatra. Like, after Humphrey Bogart died, Lauren Bacall and Frank Sinatra got together and they got engaged, um, and then it did not end well. Yeah, fun fact. I have all lots of fun facts about Hollywood stars because I love them so much. Lauren Bacall is your favorite, isn't she? Because I know she's your Tumblr uh, URL right now. Yeah, she's my she's my favorite forever. She's like everything to me. It's too bad she never did a movie musical. I don't know if she would have been suited for it, though, because her voice... She trained her voice to be that husky uh, so she could be matched for Humphrey Bogart, essentially. But at she that did, point, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, musicals are not really her thing. Mm-hmm. Um... But she's she's forever the femme fatale. Yes, but yeah. So her and Frank Sinatra not not super wonderful. Um, but that's okay. So yeah, those those are my favorite musicals. (laughs) Singing in the Rain at all. (laughs) At all. Singing in the Rain. It really holds up still. I watched it recently. Um, after Debbie Fisher passed away, and it's still a really good film. Like, a lot of the movie musicals I've watched from, like, the 1930s to 50s have, like, very thin plots, like I was saying. But Singing in the Rain is, like, it is very well plotted. The characters are great and, like, snarky, and they're all very, like, self-aware as well. It's just, like, a wonderfully made, wonderfully acted film, and um, definitely one that I think could still, like, stand the test of time. That's the thing is, I didn't see Singing in the Rain until uh 2011 mm-hmm. uh because i saw it in a critical approach to cinema class um shout out to eric Dusser for showing that in his class <laughs> uh so and i was really taken aback by how self-aware and like um, not satirical but like how yeah like how self-aware it was as like Very a meta winking. i didn't realize i didn't realize it was like winking at the camera like mm-hmm. a lot and how like the Don Lockwood Hollywood story is like, you know, like they're, they're making a, they're making fun of Hollywood essentially. I didn't realize like, you know, growing up, I I knew, I knew singing in the rain, like the song and like that moment in movie history when he's like singing in the rain. Mm-hmm. And like, I knew good morning a little bit. And like, I, I wasn't, but I didn't know the full context of the movie. Like I didn't realize how much it was making fun of Hollywood. Well, smart so, film. Like, yeah. yeah. Like I didn't realize what the movie was about until I saw, actually saw it. Mm-hmm. It's also really funny, and anyone who ever like impersonates Lena Lamont will always get a laugh out of me because Lena. Oh, my mom hilarious. does. Oh my she god, does. I like I love her. So I just love whenever she's like, I can't make love to a bush. <laughs> I just like love her. I saw Staying in the Rain on stage in London, and there was a splash zone, and we sat in it. In that, in Singing in the Rain, like, it's actually oh. raining, and the guy who plays Don, like, purposely, like, will sweep his foot to send water out into the audience. <laughs> like, like, over there the was... pit? Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Poor like, people got wet. Players. It was a splash zone. It was a really fun production. Um, I wanted to give one more quick shout out also to Mary Martin's Peter Pan, Ooh. which is a really great musical. Um, it's definitely a product of its time, but I am very fond of it. It was first, again, on TV mm. um, for uh, in 1955. Um, and Mary Martin was actually also a muse of uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm. Um, but she also, she played Peter Pan in this production, um, which I grew up watching. My parents had it on VHS and we would watch it often. Um, and I just think some of the songs in it are really lovely. Um, the Native American bit, not so much, but, like, Tiger Lily's played by this white blonde girl. Uh. It's very awkward, um, but otherwise, it's a really charming musical, and, like, Hook has, like, these three songs, and, like, one of them's, like, a tango, and, like, one of them, (laughs) it's really great, he, like... When Hook starts feeling a song coming on, he'll, like, have his pirate men, like, do a tempo for him. Oh, my God. (laughs) So he can, like, have his song and dance number, and he'll be, like, a tango. So he was a... (laughs) Hook is basically a diva, then. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, if if you watch, like, the original Peter Pan, too, like, Hook is always portrayed as, like, extremely effeminate. Mm -hmm. 
um, and kind that. of over the top. Um, and you'd see it in the original animated film and this Mary Martin version. Mm-hmm. It kind of ended with J- Jason Isaacs, who played him more masculine and tough. Um, ah. But <laughs> I but, know uh, Dustin Hoffman did not. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman's also kind of an effeminate hook. Yeah, you're right. Um, Even though so, I don't yeah. think there was any singing in Hook, right? No. Uh, the little girl has a song. But it's not like a musical, like the pirates no. don't break out into songs, so. No. Um, although the pirates all cry when they hear it. Um, did you but watch, yeah, so um, did Mary you... Martin Peter Pan is great. Oh. Did you watch the, um, Peter Pan Live on NBC? Yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. It was awful. I, le- I legitimately think that the only good musical that these networks have done so far is The Wiz. Did you see Grease? I heard Grease was very good. I didn't like Grease very much. I was very impressed by the sets for Grease. Yes. The was direction like, was incredible. The direction was very cool. The guy it who directs super- Hamilton directed that. Oh, yeah. that makes sense then. Um, But I think The Wiz was actually, like, was genuinely good. And I think the other ones have kind of all fallen short. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, they're going to keep doing them. They're doing, I think they're doing Bye Bye Birdie next with Jennifer Lopez. Oh, interesting. So... I watched Bye Bye Birdie in, I think, my, my middle school theater class. I did take a Bye Bye Birdie is fun. Yeah, that's a fun one. It's it's cute. Also, Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. Oh, we didn't even mention Mary Poppins. I've seen Mary Poppins. Although Mary Poppins falls out of our... Oh, it is. Like, out of our, our time, time period. <laughs> Does it? Uh, is yeah. it too late? Mm-hmm. It's, in the it 1960- it's in the 1960s. Uh, I thought it was like, I thought I thought it was like in the 60s that counted. For the hot, for like before the Hays Code died, but okay, no, the I get code. it. Um, yeah. It's yeah, I mean like, it's wholesome. It's it's classic, but it's Bye Bye Birdie's also in the '60s, and also with Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, there are really great musicals. They just kind of fall just outside of kind of the studio system. Like yeah, they're like on that cusp. Mm. Like that's like, the thing is, I'm I, I've seen a lot of these like post studio system musicals that we don't get to talk about in this one. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, because it was, like, sort of, like, the 1930s to 1950s musicals, and then, like, the decade of the 60s is this weird in-between. Yeah. Between, like, the studio system and New Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. And it's, like, this weird, like, gray zone. Because we talk about The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde being New Hollywood, but in the same year, Dr. Doolittle came out and won the Oscar. So, like, we... It was this weird transitional period where they were making new modern movies that, you know, that we all love, like Taxi Driver and the, all the Scorsese movies and Grim and Gritty. But then they were also making, like, Grease and, like, all the fun musicals, all the, like, the studio st- studio type musicals. So, yeah, very interesting time period. So I think we should end our conversation just, like, why have musicals kind of last the song or like why do we still love them do they hold up like do you think they've lasted this long in good ways um and kind of like why we romanticize the musical just kind of touch on that well i think it goes back to your point of, of it being fantasy i feel like people like to escape and i think that that the, the the movie musical is almost the ultimate way of escaping into fantasy because you get like more tradition like more traditional fantasy movies like Lord of the Rings or something they're very heavy-handed and like you know a lot of fantasy movies nowadays are very heavy-handed but you get the musical which is very light on its feet <laughs> but also like you know its themes are much more like escapist than other other fantasy quote films so i think yeah, that I think that's a part they of don't- it fall under the genre of fantasy. No, but like because they're... like they're not fantasy films, but like in the literal sense of like this this does not happen in real life. It is not a realistic depiction of life. Yeah. In that way, they're like fantasy films. I think yeah. that that's why and people will like rewatch it. Like my mom, one of my mom's favorite films is Singing in the Rain. Um and so it's just one of those it's just the, the type of movie type of genre of movie that just kind of you know lets people escape reality for a little bit yeah they're escapists in the purest way yeah and i think that in this upcoming uh presidential administration we're gonna see probably more musicals and more escapist Mm -hmm. movies i do think that the movie musicals of the studio age um are a big 
reason why people tend to glamorize and be nostalgic over that time period. Um, cause they, I don't know if like they, it's cause they associate these music, these musicals with this time period, or they think that like life was really like that. Um, that it tends to like be very like glossy and light and glamorous. Um, even though like, you know, it wasn't so, but I do like, I do think even like in that time period, then those movies were escapists for the audiences who were watching mm-hmm. it when they first came out. Um, and I do, I do think that they appeal now because of that nostalgic um, escapist factor. Um, and I sometimes like, you know, the, the plots are thin and they don't age well, but they do stand the test of time because like these stars, you know, they shine so bright and they're so ch- charming and charismatic. There's a reason why Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers or Gene Kelly are still names today that people recognize because, you know, they did these movies that like, maybe aren't that great, but they, they were great in them. And we could point to La La Land as it still puts inspiration into people because, you know, Damien Chazelle was inspired by these movies to make La La Land. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, among other movies as well, but like that, the old Hollywood movies were a big factor into his creation of La La Land. Yeah. I think people... Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about La La Land, even though we're going to save that later for our Oscars episode. Um, It's it's definitely a true homage just to those studio-era musicals, not just, you know, Broadway musicals, which I know a lot of people have been judging them by because, you know, it's all about singing and dancing and about the skill that these people have. But more so for me, La La Land is about, like, an homage to these stars and celebrities of the studio age and like how they carry that movie and they kind of transcend the movie honestly and especially with the pairing this is the last thing i'll talk about Lala, especially with the pairing of ryan gosling and emma stone mm-hmm. that that like behind the scenes like that's what they were trying to do was they were trying to do like a fred and ginger like they like a star pair up um and they had been in a couple movies prior like gangster squad and crazy stupid love so you know it's like that itself is a homage to old Hollywood because mm-hmm. they could have yeah. gotten, they could have got unknowns to play the leads. It would have been the, it would have been a, a different movie. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I, I, the fact that they have the, you know, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone are very much a list movie stars right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. not because of La La Land, but because of what they've done in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you guys think that these old classic Hollywood musicals hold up? The ones I've seen, yes. <laughs> I think I think they don't necessarily hold up. I think they are like a fun escape, but again, like I said, they a lot of the plots are really thin. They're a product of their time, but they're still like they're com- comforting to watch. I think. Yeah, I think some do. I mean, I think mm-hmm. Singing in the Rain holds up. Yeah, really it depends well. on the film. Yeah, I think yeah. Singing in the Rain could could be made today. Like if I think it wasn't Wizard made, of Oz in holds 19- up really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think if Singing in the Rain wasn't made in 1952, if it was made today about the, if it was the same exact movie, I think it could have been it could it could be just as good. Yeah. It sort of has, just not as musical the artist. Yeah, well, I mean the artist is very Which much Which is one ins- of my favorite movies. Uh, it, very much inspired by the old old days. Mhm. But yeah, like I'm thinking about a lot of the friend friend ginger movies that were essentially recycled plot and recycled songs. Um, it's funny because a lot of the musicals, you know, uh, of that era were, you know, are heralded as being like original and like these great songs that we don't make anymore. But the songs are all recycled from like just songs that had that are popular at the time, like are on the radio or something. And they're just like, let's make this song into a movie. I think like that's, that's what Sing, Sing in the Rain had. That, that was the case for Sing in the Rain. Yeah. Which I thought was which I always find really funny because like it's not built to be like a movie musical it's just like they take an idea and they're like let's make this into a musical and it's kind of whim it's like on a whim it's spontaneous um yeah the pairing of fred and ginger looked like i know a lot about them was kind of like that because they were actually the second um tier stars in this movie flying down to rio and um they had one dance scene and there was they had so much chemistry and charm that they the studio execs were like let's make a movie out of them and then let's make them stars yeah and then like they created a whole series of like i don't know five seven movies together like cranking out like once a year too so yeah they did so many movies back then Mm -hmm. it was was a lot it was it's definitely like 
a product of the studio system that they can crank out so many movies because it's very just like industrialized in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's a good end to our episode about musicals. Mm-hmm. I think, ha- Willoughby, have you learned a lot about musicals? So much. <laughs> good. Have a whole... good. I hope you'll watch them now. Yeah. You have a whole Where recommendation av- list now. <laughs> Where are they available? I feel like these older movies aren't really available. Um, My DVD collection. <laughs> Some okay, of them I'll just are Netflix. California tonight. I also have, I, I have um, my cousins. I borrowed from them their friend Ginger collection, so I can, I can lend that to you. <laughs> sometimes um but yeah i mean and their netflix has they don't have all of them we didn't mention this but um also gentlemen prefer blonde marilyn monroe i forgot about that wow i can't she's believe. wonderful please yeah, check we've out heard her about, like too. all of the marilyn monroe movies Whoops. yeah marilyn is uh i mean not all of them are musicals yeah but, but a lot of them are um gentlemen prefer blonde is my favorite of her musical movies um, but definitely also check out Marilyn people because she is wonderful. She's so talented. I, always, I love I, for some reason, I forget about gentlemen for, prefer blondes, but that's a movie that also holds up. I'm pretty sure that's on Netflix. Will be. Mm-hmm. I think it is too. So, oh, and we should also mention that the, 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 the modern, the classic Hollywood has, ins- has inspired, uh, TV shows too, like crazy ex-girlfriend. True. Yeah. Cause love triangle is based exactly on diamond or uh, Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there was the other one with uh, both Josh and, oh, Greg. Uh, they were tap dancing. They tap- did like a Fred. They had, they well, then like also, a Gene well, Greg's Kelly number in season one, Settle for Me. Yeah. yeah. The black so, and white. and the... There's a lot of that. There's definitely a resurgence right now in um, classic Hollywood studio era movie nostalgia. And like the inspirations that take that other shows and movies are taking from it. Like, as we were talking about before, like, the live TV musicals that we're seeing, um, those are big influence. Those are influenced really largely by that. And um, fictional dramas like uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. So musicals are definitely a really big thing in Hollywood, and we really like them, or at least HT and I do, and we're going to make Willoughby watch more. Yeah. I mean, I like them. I just haven't. No, I know. <laughs> you I don't have. I don't have. I just want. I don't have anything against classic Hollywood musicals. It's just I haven't had the ability to see them. So, which is good. I have a friend who's like against musicals on principle, and I'm like, Ugh, that's terrible. Are you like devoid of joy in your life? life. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. Good, I think that's a good uh, definition of musicals. They're just joy. Yeah. Unless you get the depressing ones, but we won't talk about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Those are more modern musicals, though. Yes. Yeah, a lot, like, La La Land is modern at the end, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like if it was made back then, it would not have had the same ending. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Um, so, yeah, so musicals are great, and they'll bring you joy. So if anyone's feeling down, just go watch a classic Hollywood musical. Agreed. Uh, so let's move on to the next segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. So, Anya, why don't you tell us what you really like this week? All right, so as if we hadn't have enough movie recommendations in our episode so far, I'm going to give um, a couple more Um just in two movies that I've seen in the last two days that I've really liked. Um, the first one is A Monster Calls, which I have talked about before on this podcast. Um, I finally saw it, and it's really beautiful. Um, it will make you cry, <laughs> but it, it's a really unique exploration of grief and guilt and kind of coping with those feelings. It's about um, it's based on a book and about this little boy who his mother, who's played by Felicity Jones, is dying from cancer. Um, and he ends up coping with it, although he doesn't really know it at first, through the help of this kind of, like, this tree monster, um, who's voiced by Liam Neeson. Um, I don't want to give too much away, because there are actually a lot of things in the movie that aren't in the trailers that I didn't know was going to happen, and it really elevated the film for me. Um, but it's basically kind of, again, it's a fantasy movie, um, and just kind of how people cope with grief and going through these times in their lives um and it's really beautiful it's an imperfect film there's some storytelling that's a bit off but 
I think it's worth checking out. It's definitely one of the more unique films out there right now. Um, and then Friday night, I watched The Tale of the Princess Kaguya from Studio Ghibli. Oh, I've been wanting to watch that. I have it's not seen it yet. beautiful. Because, oh. like I talked about, animation has become kind of a bigger and more important thing in my life. And I'm trying to watch more and kind of spread the word, spread the gospel of animation. Um, and Tale of the Princess Kaguya is really beautiful. Its animation is unlike anything I've ever seen in a full-length film. And it's very it's, unlike Studio Ghibli house style too, right? It's like yeah. more like brush and like calligraphy yes. strokes. Yeah, um, it's really ch- it's charming and it's fun and it's heartwarming. It also made me cry. I have a hard time not crying in like any movie though, so <laughs> that's just me. Um, but it's a really lovely film, and so I just think people should check out these films. Like, you have you know, branch out if you think something's not really your taste, like. I would say try and go for things anyway, because there's so much that film can do, especially animation. I'm going to forgive you for doing two really likes this week again, because you did... Uh, it's one really like... It's, I, I really like movie recommendations. Okay. Here are two of them. All right, Anya. I know. I I'm thought gonna you were going to pin week. me for that. <laughs> I was going to do just The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, but then I saw Monster Calls last night, and I was like, I need to say something. <laughs> All right. I'll try and keep it to one, I promise. Given this week. Willoughby, what is your really like this week? Um, I recently bought the last volume in the Darth Vader Marvel series, and I reread this, the entire series yesterday. Um, I had read it kind of sporadically the two years that it ran. So when I, when I read the final issue when it came out uh, in October – it felt like I was missing something and it was because I had forgotten a lot of plot points that had, had gone on. So I reread it this weekend and it holds up. I really like it. Um, it's a lot of insight into how everyone sees Darth Vader, especially after the destruction of the Death Star, because he's got a lot of blame on it uh, because like, you know, he was, you know, in charge kind of with Tarkin and then, you know, he didn't stop Luke from destroying it. So like, the Emperor really, like, puts him to shame, and he kind of has to redeem himself in the eyes of the Emperor and everyone else to kind of come back and be, like, you know, the villain that we all see him as. So it's very cool, and there's a uh, an original character. Uh, she's a rogue archaeologist named Dr. Afra, and she's really cool, really spunky, um, and she's got this weird crush on Darth Vader, which is very interesting. Um, and uh, she's getting her own comic series, because she's such a fan favorite. Um, so I'm excited to, to read more of that. Actually, I think the first two issues are already out. But the Darth, the, the Darth Vader Marvel series is really fun, really enjoyable. Um, it's, it's, just, it's also very um, visually striking. Um, you see a lot of extra Darth Vader stuff that, you know, that we've all come to like make a meme out of in Rogue One and Rebels. Uh, there's more of it. And, like, because there's one point where the Rebels are like, Darth Vader, we have you surrounded. And he's like, all I'm surrounded by is fear and dead men. And he whips out his lightsaber. I'm like, Jesus, Darth Vader. Oh, my God. Come on. Can you be more much. extra? He's and I'm like, yes, too much yeah. for me. <laughs> yeah. I know you're not, I know, I know, Anya, you're not the biggest Darth Vader fan. And I'm trying to convince you with all these new things about Darth Vader that maybe you can see from a different perspective. Wait, convince me of what? Well, like, in our, like you didn't like him. You don't like him. I don't. No, I don't like him. Yeah, so I'm trying, trying to... I'm what trying do I to need to be convinced of? He commits genocide. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> he literally killed all those baby Padawans. Like, what do I need to be convinced? To he, like, became a genocidal maniac because he had a nightmare. Yeah. Like, a lot of that. You guys can see this, but when uh, Willoughby was describing the character, the fan favorite character who had a crush on Darth Vader, Anya made like this grimace. It was hilarious. <laughs> well, I'm like, he's also like at this point a robot. Like, yeah. Why are you crushing on a robot? Yeah, it's weird. There's a lot of it's, it's. It's very interesting. It's that's why I said it's interesting because it's like that's weird. Um, I'm like, I appreciate Darth Vader as a villain, but people who are like. Uh, well, like, they're not trying to really sympathize. The, the 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 comic series doesn't make him. Well, there's some sympathy going on uh, with Padme, like the tragic loss of his wife, but that's kind of it. Everything else is kind of like, yeah. <laughs> Padme had better chemistry with Obi Wan Kenobi than she ever did well, with Anakin. Of course. Have you guys course. seen that little theory going around on um, 
on the internet about how you, the Star Wars prequels become much better if you watch it with the thought that Padme and Obi Wan are having an affair. And that's, well, have I told you my have I told you my YouTube Hamlet theory? On, what have I told you my Hamlet theory? No. no. So I compare the pre- Star Wars prequels to Hamlet all the time. Uh huh. So there's a retelling of Hamlet called Ophelia Thinks Harder, which is basically Hamlet from the point of view of Ophelia, and also the plot ends up changing because of decisions she makes. And in that retelling, in that play, she does get with uh, Horatio instead of Hamlet, which is great because Horatio is the best. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my god, Hamlet is Anakin, Padme is Ophelia, Horatio is Obi-Wan, R2-D2 and T-3PO are Rosencrantz and Gildenstern. Like, Star Wars prequels are Hamlet, if, and I'm always like, yes, Ophelia and Horatio and Padme and Obi-Wan Kenobi, like, much better. Well, there's a ton of fan videos of, like, putting Obi-Wan and Padme together to, like, you know, music videos and stuff. Also, they don't have a weird age difference. That's true, they they don't. I secretly want, I secretly want them to have had a child. I don't know when this would have happened, because they, like, saw Padme the whole time. But, like, I just really want Rey to be a Kenobi that's I'm reading very for that. Well, it's possible Rey's a Kenobi because Obi Wan has had some flings, so I really hope she's a Kenobi. And I mean, like, who knows? Maybe Obi Wan had a daughter who got with Luke, so Rey is a Kenobi and a Skywalker. Oh, what? Man. Yo, that'd be weird if if Luke was like, "You're my mentor's daughter. Let's be together." <laughs> I mean never know i just feel like i just i don't want the kenobi line to like end like i feel mm-hmm. like this story has always been about the kenobi well one kenobi <laughs> and the skywalkers the best character and... obi-wan kenobi uh... that was terrible <laughs> <laughs> you set up the pitch all right all right yeah. yes so... i don't like darth vader but i'm glad you're enjoying the comic yeah. <laughs> So the Darth Vader series is great. It's 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 ended now, but the Doctor Afra um, spinoff is I think starting up now. So awesome! Nice. So H-E. my really like for this week is a series of unfortunate events, the Netflix series. I I think I mentioned this before, but I was not a huge fan of the book series when I was young. I think I took the series a little bit, the title a little too um, seriously when I read it, because I thought it would actually be a very tragic story. At the time, I was really into reading, like, historical fiction books about, like, Indian child brides, so I was like, this isn't sad at all. (laughs) I didn't get that, like, a series of unfortunate events was supposed to be, like, facetious and sort of, like, witty and, like, kind of strange and, like, dark humor, essentially. And when I watched the series, it is just kind of, like, it's very up my alley. It has that Wes Anderson meets, like, Tim Burton meets Pushing Daisies aesthetic, and it's... You sold it. Yep, that's, like, it's, like, all the things that I like, um, and it's just, like, it's... Neil Patrick Harris is the perfect amount of campy in it. He's hamming up in every scene, but it's just, like, I guess it's less so than Jim Carrey's version. Um, it's not as, like... We don't speak of the Jim Carrey version. Do not. Um, it's very bad. <laughs> no, it has a lot of surprising um, big guest stars in there, like Joan Cusack shows up, um, Alfred Woodard shows up. Um, fun fact, uh, Mr. Trick from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Slayer Season 3 is a recurring character and I, in this series, and I could not place him for the longest time, and I was like, that is Mr. Trick from Buffy the Vampire speaking Slayer of Season the, 3. Speaking of like, the guest celebrities and stuff, um, so when Hollywood Reporter put out their review of it, they mentioned the parents, and they were like, but Netflix has demanded that we don't say who plays them. And so, like, literally this whole time, I've been like, who plays the parents? Why are they so important? You can't say who they are. And then finally, someone spoiled it on BuzzFeed, and I was like, thank God I know now. Because, like, I don't know when I'm going to get to watch it. I just wanted to know who played the parents, it's and really, now I know. It's really fun. I started binging it last night, and I'm about halfway through. Oh, no. It's only eight episodes, so I'm on episode oh. six. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and they like... and they do a good job. I've I've heard. I haven't watched mm-hmm. any of it. I've I've heard that each episode is or like the first like each two episodes is a, is a book. Yeah. And it's, it's part one and part two. Yeah. Every... Oh, so it's not going to go for like multiple seasons. No. No, it's going to go for like two seasons, I think. Yeah. Because they're, I, I they're there's twelve books, books oh. and they're they've they, there's twelve books and they've already in the first 
eight episodes take place over the first four books? Yeah, so maybe three books. seasons altogether? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's really well done. I really like the aesthetic. Um, just, like, the tone as well is really great. It, it Yeah, like, it matches the tone of, like, the directors that I was speaking of earlier. So, um, yeah. Patrick Warburton is one of my favorite, like, character actors. So I'm excited to, to get yes. watching on this show. I forgot to even mention him. They have a very, like, Twilight zone style narrator with um, Lemony Snicket's character. So, like, with each episode, it's they have Patrick Warburton basically narrating the poor unfortunate events of these kids and it's it's great it's just like it's a really it's a really fun series i recommend it completely nice awesome all right guys well our episode for the week if you guys have any thoughts on the classic hollywood musical or a series of unfortunate events or marvel star wars darth vader comic or any of the movies i mentioned the tale of the princess kaguya and a monster calls you should definitely come chat with us about those things and where can they do that willoughby you can find us on facebook um or on twitter at falcon podcast our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com we're on soundcloud and you can rate review and subscribe to us on itunes and google play and where can they find you guys you can find me at anya crittenton on twitter you can find me at htranbui on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.